I'm going to share with you from God's Word in Deuteronomy chapters 1 and 2. It's going to be an exciting time because we had last week a fantastic overview of Deuteronomy, right? It, how many of you enjoyed it last week? Right, yeah, I could see almost every hand raised up. It was a rousing introduction to Deuteronomy, an overview. And at the end of it, it culminated in knowing that God, our God, is one. And love Him with our hearts, absolutely. That's so great. That's so good, right? The Shema, we heard about the Shema. Well, today, it was also, I'm going to take the very first, um, well, Pastor Isaac started it yesterday too, but today we are also doing chapters 1 and 2, and we're going to talk about the word Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy actually in Hebrew is Devarim. Devarim actually refers to literally his words. Whose words? Moses' words. Deuteronomy 1, verse 1, actually states it as it is. The word, uh, these are the words that Moses spoke. The words that Moses spoke. And it's about a last words, a testament of Moses. And it's so important to him that he's able to tell the Israelites once again of what God did. He brought, him, brought them all out of Egypt and then saw them through the wilderness. And now, one generation and 40 years later, they are poised and ready to move into God's promise to this new generation of Israelites. It was a time of looking back in order to look forward. I'm borrowing Pastor Fergus's word. I like that, that phrase, looking back to look forward. There are times when we have to do that. Have you done that yourself before? To look back, to take stock and to look forward? I have, not many times, but I can remember those times were certainly momentous times in my life when I have to make tough, life-changing decisions. Like looking back to see what went wrong when I received my A-level results and I didn't qualify to go into university. I had to take stock of my, what I'd done in school. Did, did I, do I have the capacity to reset it once more? Or am I going to do something totally different? Well, that was a tough decision I made. And then, at the point of proposing to my wife now of 33 years, at the time I was thinking, so many questions were going through my mind. Is she? Could I? Should I? Could she? You know, I'm sure many of you have gone through that before. Those were times when you have to think back and look at all the, 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 the events that have happened. And then you ask God, go down your knees, ask God, what lies ahead? No matter what age, I'm sure you've gone through each one of you would have gone through some decision, whether you're at college or whether you're at working or whether you are now grandparents with children, you would have to make decisions like this. You will reach a part where there's a fork in the road and then you make the decision. So have the Israelites in Deuteronomy. They were again at the brink of entering into God's promise when they have failed once before. Are they prepared to move into the promise this time? Are they prepared? What was the promise actually to start off with? We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 21. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. To the Israelites led by Moses some 40 years ago was God's promise of a homeland possession. This reminder by Moses in Deuteronomy 1, 21, was not the first time that this promise came to the Israelites. God had already promised this to Abraham much earlier as he walked through Canaan in response to God's call for him. 
Go back to Genesis 12, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. The altar was already in Canaan, actually. So the people are now coming back to claim what is their homeland. Tana Aiku. Wow. God is finally giving His people a land that they can call their own. And God's promise wasn't just a mere word that He said to Abraham. It was further ratified in a covenant known later as the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Wow, it was a great swath of land right from the bottom at the part where Egypt is, all the way to the top where Assyria was during those times. Today is Syria, the country Syria. The river Euphrates is a big swath of land. To the bunch of the red tech, you know, people that were there, the Israelites, right at the east side of the river Jordan, in their mind, they could not have imagined it that it is ever possible that they could enter into this promise. You know, such a big part of land and yet, yet with faith, the second time round, and they decided to go into it. It might have been long in its coming, but God's promise has been fulfilled during David's reign. God never reneges on His promise. You see that brown patch there? That was David's kingdom, and it fulfilled exactly what God promised to the people many, many, many years later. Have you been reminded of any of God's promise today to you lately? Let's carry on and see. That moment subsequent to 121, I want you to, to imagine with me, just, just follow me on this imagination trip. Imagine there were great, 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 great grandchildren of Bill Gates in the future and being shown this vast expanse of land. You know who Bill Gates are, right? Right? You all know, right? He's one of the richest men in the world. So it's this vast expanse of land and they see it and they were told, this is your inheritance. And they had to talk among themselves, sure not, such a big piece of land, very difficult to manage one. Let, let us check it out first and see whether it's good or not. And they checked it out. And after checking out, they found, yeah, it's good, but no. They turned their backs to it and said, no, I'm not going to take this piece of land. And the land passed from them. And then came to the great, 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 plus one more great grandchildren's generation. And they asked the same thing, do you want to take this land? This was a scenario that we set the Israelites when they were there at the east side of the Jordan. This time now, they are the next generation. Some 40 years earlier, when the previous generation came to the promised land, they came so close, and yet so far, they lost it. This time, it's the second time round. The first time, they didn't trust the Lord. Then they spied out the land. And then when the reports came back, there were so many negative reports. But they did find out that in Deuteronomy 1, Verse 25 is stated here. It is a good land that the Lord, our God, is giving us. But being overtaken by fear and distrust of God's intentions, they failed to grab hold of God's promise. So they were led into 40 years of preparation before another attempt at re-entry. Now, speaking of re-entry, you know, in order for the NASA Space Shuttle to return to Earth, successfully complete this mission. Yes, to complete. Yes, to complete the whole process that has exact calculations to and, and maneuvering to have a window of opportunity so that they can re-enter into the Earth atmosphere. If by some bizarre reason 
they miss that window of opportunity, you know what's going to happen to the shuttle? Well, it might crash, but the alternative, the only alternative is go a wrong loop, sometimes one orbit around the Earth again, and to find back that window of opportunity because it's calculated to the exact dimensions and they enter again to land at a spot where they are supposed to land. For the shuttle, it takes one more loop for re-entry. But for the Israelites, it took one generation before another attempt. Either way, the important thing is not about the shuttle or the people or the process at which it goes in. The important thing is that window of opportunity. That window of opportunity. Once you miss it, you may not find it again. But I encourage you that at the beginning of Deuteronomy, heed the mistakes that the Israelites made. Don't miss out on the window of opportunity. Don't miss out on the window of opportunity. It's an, it's an opportunity to follow the Lord's ordained trajectory for you once you hear or sense a distinct call. If you miss the window, as I said, it might take a very long while or it might never come round one more time. For some of you, you might think that this window is the carpe diem, seize the moment. Or maybe to others it's YOLO, you know, you live for just only once. But more often than not, it's neither. It's not one or the other. It's really just for the moment. For the Israelites, it was the promise of God that were reiterated again and again and again over time. And again, they were supposed to enter into it. And like the space shuttle, there's this trajectory with a special purpose and a special objective. The Israelites had that in a divine way. There was a divine objective and purpose for them. And they were supposed to go into it. They missed it once. But are they going to miss it the second time round? Not this time. That's not what Deuteronomy tells us. The second time round, they went in. Likewise, you and I, as God's people, are always guided in calculated steps by the Holy Spirit. Nothing happens by accident if you are God's child. Nothing happens by accident. It's by the Holy Spirit's guidance. And for many of you who are hearing me today, you know what I'm talking about. You would have heard that call maybe some time ago that the Lord has already guided you along a certain way. But something is holding you back. I don't know what it is. It could be that giving up some hours of that dream job that you have in order to be able to contribute towards serving in church. It could be earning that little bit less so that you might be able to welcome a new addition to your family. It could also maybe be that you might have a little bit less fame and finance to heed the call of what the Lord is calling you today. Maybe to go full-time? Who knows? You know, and God knows. It may be one of these. But what's holding you back? Is it a fear? Is there a distrust, a suspicion that God's intention for you is not all that good? It might be some pitfall along the way if you go into this deal with the Lord. Let me remind you what Jeremiah 29, 11 says. The Lord himself tells his people, the Lord has plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to bring you a hope and a future. Take that promise, assimilate into you. That's the Lord God Almighty. He is your God and he has a plan to prosper you. Trust that God is for you. He means well for you. And he's with you. Just sang that just now that I know that He is for me and I know that God is with me. Hallelujah. The window to act may be right now, may be right now. 
don't miss out on that window as the Israelites once did. And if God is speaking to you, Shema, hear and obey. Hear and obey. You'll hear more about it in Deuteronomy 6 later on. But hear and obey. Amen? Preparations to move into the promise took the Israelites one generation to complete. For the previous generation's negative attitudes and paradigms has to go away. Meanwhile, the Joshua and Caleb's generation's boldness, tenacity, and fervor was shaped in these 40 formative years. They were shaped during this time. This was a period described in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Now we're going to chapter 2, verse 1. But what happened then? Then, this was describing the events 40 years ago. Then we turned back and set out towards the wilderness along the route to the Red Sea, as the Lord has directed me. For a long time, we made our way around the hill country of Seir. It's almost like the country western song, as she's coming round the mountain, as she comes, going round and round and round. But allow me to make it clear at this point that when I speak of a generation passing away and a new one replacing them, I'm not talking about getting rid of the oldies here, okay? I'm not talking about getting rid of y'all so that you're replaced by the young ones. No, not at all. I'm talking about a season, a season, and a season, a season of transitioning from an old set of paradigms and attitudes to a new outlook. The old set of paradigms are filled with things like discontentment, grievances, complaints, uh, offences. They had all that in the Bible. You can read about it yourself. But it's also real life. That's the old set of paradigm. But it has to be replaced by enthusiasm, by the vigour and the boldness in the outlook of the new. Am I among like-minded people here? Right, right. If someone give me an amen to that. Hallelujah. That's right. We We are not looking at age. We are looking at outlook. And that's, we are transitioning into that. We are in this process itself. And that was exactly what was needed too at that time for the Israelites to be prepared for entering into the promise of God. That first time when they came around, God knew they weren't ready. There were a lot of things they need to be changed. And therefore, they went round and round the mountain one more time and in the desert too. They learned many lessons in the desert of Seir. How to faithfully overcome the hardships due to the constant lack, how to trust the Lord for all their provisions. No food in the desert, imagine that. Nothing very much grows there. And how to trust the Lord, even as He sees them through all the continuous wandering. If you are always camping, there's a lot of frustration building up too. But despite that, the Lord was with them. He conversed with them, He talked to them. But in essence, what they have learned is to discard the old ways of the faithless generation. But mostly, mostly, through all the ups and downs and ins and outs, what they have realised, they have learned who Yahweh really is. They learn to know and to acknowledge the Lord God Almighty, His character, His likes, His dislikes. That is what they have learned during this time. They always say that one way to really get to know someone, like Pastor Jeffrey just was talking about the old days when we were young, we're still young, right? Okay. When we're young, we used to go on trips together, mission trips together. You really want to get to know someone, you go on a road trip with that person. Let's say the Israelites went on a 40 years road trip with the Lord. And that's what they did. They got to know God better. But they also learned to trust Him, to learn to communicate with Him, to ask Him, and to hear to Shema in return. But most of all, they also learned how to love Him. 
That was an important period. It wasn't a wasted time. So as much now, they're coming in the second time round, the re-entry. They've been prepared for the promise. But they come to a time where all these preparations has to be put to the test. I mean, no point in all these things. And now they're right back at where they started 40 years earlier. It is a real test now. It was a climactic moment at the end of all their wanderings. Having had little victories over Sihon and Og, Sihon the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan. And even in Deuteronomy 1.5, the people of God gathered east of the Jordan in the territory of Moab. Moses began to expound this law. Now Moses began to tell them again, meaning that Moses recounted significant past events that they went through in his 40 years before the crossing of the Jordan. By then, the old generation has passed and there's a new generation there. So Moses has to remind them the principles that the way that God has brought them out of Egypt saw them through. And listen now, young people, this is what Moses is saying. He has three major reminders that Moses wanted to tell them as they are about to move into the promise. First, to forego the forbidden. Second, to forbear your enemies. And third, a foretaste of victory. The first, forego the forbidden. What does forego mean? Still clear, get away, don't do it, don't go near it. But what were they forbidden from? Moses' reminder was meant to forbid the Israelites from making the same past mistakes. They made the same past mistakes. And so now, 40 years later, Moses is telling them, I'm going off soon. Don't make the same mistakes your previous generation made. What are they? Deuteronomy 1, 26 to 33 and 41 to 43. In Deuteronomy 1, 26, 29 to 32, if you read with me together, what the Israelites did, no, it's not in the scripture yet, what the Israelites did was when they were told to go, they decided to stay. 126, but you're unwilling to go out. You rebel against the command of the Lord, your God. And then from verse 29, then I, Moses, said to you, do not be terrified, do not be afraid of them. The Lord, your God, who is going before you, will fight for you, as he did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes, and also in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you. Remember, this generation was with the older generation. They were young, but they were growing up. They also saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father. So Moses used a good example now. As a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God. That was the first mistake. Then, ironically, the reverse happened in Deuteronomy 41 to 43, verse 41 to 43. When now they choose to go, but the Lord told them to stay. Deuteronomy 1, 41. Then you replied, I've sinned, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight because I will not be with you. You'll be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. Same verse again, you rebel against the Lord's command and in your arrogance, you march up into the hill country. And then they suffered a huge defeat. 
at the hands of the Amorites. So in the first instance, they didn't trust the Lord. They sent spies to see if the promised land was worth going into. But because of the negative report of the majority, they decided not to go in. Why? Because they were afraid. No, no, not even afraid. They were terrified of the inhabitants of the land. Imagine that the God, the Lord, Yehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts behind them, yet they were terrified. Makes you wonder where the trust, the faith in God was. So that time of preparation was necessary. So they initially, they went by sight and not by faith. They rebelled against God and they missed out on seeing the fulfillment of God's promise for all of them. Then the next reminder, the Israelites' arrogance and the poor inside, thinking it's easy to go into the hill country, we can take them down. They went by their own strength and the lack of insight and it caused them again to rebel against God's commands. And that caused them to be badly defeated by their enemies, the Amorites. The Israelites were initially fearful and then they had to turn around, they became brash and they decided they wanted to do things on their own, they relied on their own strength. And when they thought that they were making amends for their earlier rebelliousness. But the Lord was certainly not happy what they are doing and left them their own devices. That's how things often work in real life, don't they? We insist when we want to do things our own way, God says, fine, go ahead, do it on your own. If you really want to be stubborn and you rebel against the Lord, the Lord does not intrude upon you. Fine, I leave you to your devices and you go ahead and do it on your own. And you learn to accept the outcome of your stubbornness. And often, it would mean a setback. And that's what happened to the Israelites too. Looking at Deuteronomy 1.46, so you stayed in the Kadesh many days. All the time you spent there. All 14,600 days, 40 years. They were detained indefinitely and stuck in a rut. You know, it's like being stuck in a detention class. You all remember what a detention class is? Is it still in existence nowadays? Still have, right? In colleges and schools, they have still detention classes. And all of us remember there were, when you were sent to a detention class before, none, nobody? Wow, you're also quiet one, huh? I'm the only mischievous one here. <laughs> well, being detained in a detention class, or even worse, a lockup, let me assure you, it's not a pleasant experience, okay? But it is still necessary. Why? Because it deters rebelliousness and all the other mischiefs that come with it. It's also aiming for transformation. I don't know which is worse, to be detained by a teacher or to be detained by the police or by God. What do you think? What do you think? Is there something in your life lately that's come in to make you feel that you are in detention by God? Whether going by sight or on own strength, coupled with the lack of faith or of insight, can lead to rebelliousness. Essentially, what Moses was trying to forbid the Israelites from making was the same mistake twice, was rebelliousness. Don't go that direction. He was telling the new generation of God's people, don't be stiff-necked, don't go that way, don't do it again. Because God hates rebelliousness. God hates that. In Proverbs 17, 11, it's spelled out in no uncertain terms. Evildoers foster rebellion against God and the messenger of death will be sent against them. And so, a whole stiff-necked generation perished. 
For God, rebellion is as serious as practicing idolatry and witchcraft. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23 says this, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity, is as sin and idolatry. And he was talking to Saul at the time. God treats rebelliousness seriously. Therefore, it is no wonder that Satan also used rebelliousness as a tool in his attempt to prevent God from establishing the eternal legacy of David, which culminated in the Lord Jesus Christ. And hence, if that, if he was successful, we would not have our redemption. How did he do it? First, Satan incited Absalom, David's own son, to rebel against the father in 2 Samuel 15. He failed. Then Sheba, son of Bakri, one of David's men, incited all of Israel this time to go against David in 2 Samuel 20. Again, he failed. But he didn't stop there. Two generations down the line, the 10 tribes now, the whole, almost the whole of Israel, except the two small tribes that were with King Rehoboam, were incited against King Rehoboam, who is David's grandson. And then you find that in 1 Kings 12. They did not manage to do that. Instead, the whole of the northern kingdom was taken into captivity and the southern kingdom flourished. And so on and so on and so on until 2,000 years ago. The whole of Israel was incited against. Against who this time? Against the Messiah himself, Christ. It was mentioned in Matthew 27 in all the Gospels. The whole of Israel came against Jesus. It culminated in Jesus' death on the cross. But praise be to God, that rebelliousness, the mankind's rebelliousness also met an end on the cross. Today you took communion and it reminds you that what Jesus has done, the finished work of Jesus upon the cross. Today you and I have been gloriously set free from this rebellion in our sinful nature through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! When we repent and submit to Him, as our Saviour. Wow! You see the effect and how God turns things around. What men, what Satan meant for evil, God turns it around and becomes a triumphant victory in your life. Then we come to the second point. Forbear your enemies. Secondly, Moses reminds God's people about their encounters with the enemies during the last leg of the northbound journey out of the desert. In Deuteronomy 2, verse 2 to 6, Then the Lord said to me, You have made your way around the hill country long enough now. Now turn off, give the people these orders. You are about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Be very careful. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, even though not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own, and you are to pay them in silver, for the food you eat and the water you drink. And then it was also the same treatment towards the Moabites and the Ammonites, mentioned in Deuteronomy 2 verse 9 and verse 19. I believe it's appropriate at this point to share a bit about the background of the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, the Moabites and the Ammonites. The origin of these people were all related to Jacob, from whom the Israelites originated. Esau was Jacob's brother, and Ammon and Moab were cousins of Jacob. 
Now, though they're related, there were disagreements, arguments, contention over wells, over land, grievances, offences, and over this time, relatives became enemies. Or at the very least, there was strained relationship amongst them. And that's how it can be with your very own relatives too. Perhaps sometimes even a spouse or even friends or business partners too. Don't you agree? Sometimes, it may be those that are closest to you that can cause you the most hurts or pains. They may not outwardly look like your enemies, but because of all the disagreements, contention, and all the fights that they have, they may really feel like your enemy inside. But for those parties who are on the opposite side, the Lord has different plans for them. They are not necessarily plans of punishment or evil, but they are plans for restoration. You will notice from the scripture that the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites each have their own land and the Israelites were not even to touch that land. God has a plan for them. God is gracious as he's not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Indeed, he's patient with you and also them, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. He will deal with them in his time. But as for you, you might not be ready for the battles that are ahead. You might not have enough numbers. You may not be powerful enough. You may not be prepared. You may be weak or you're not skilled enough or even courageous enough to be able to enter the battle. So that's why God has other plans for you. This, that was a scenario for the Israelites at the time. So, what the Lord says is, let me fight your battles for you at this time. Look to me for all your needs. He assures the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through the vast wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you have not lacked anything. So although they were in detention, the Lord God was preparing them, strengthening them, let me encourage you that at times when you don't feel like you're winning any battles, it's because Jesus knows that you're not ready for them yet. And God is shielding you from them. He's shielding you from them while preparing you for other battles that are ahead. Amen? It was a time of preparation for moving into what lies ahead. The point is, the Lord was telling His people through Moses that to leave their enemies alone. At least for the time being, do not be distracted. Be focused on making the main thing the main thing. Be prepared to go into Canaan and claim God's promise. Wasn't it Winston Churchill also said, if I were to stop at every barking dog, I will never reach my destination. I think Pastor Chu mentioned that. I like that phrase. It's the same thing. It's the same principle here. Do not be distracted by the small things. Make the main thing the main thing. And what the Israelites have to do is Claim God's promise. But what's the main thing for you in this season that God has laid upon your heart? Oh, Sunday may I ask you a question. Hey, what is it? Nah? What is the main thing that the Lord has laid upon your heart this season? Just now when you started the sermon, you know, it is not by accident that this sermon is at the brink of the launch of 40 days of prayer and fasting leading to Lent. What better time than this to seek God? When you want to know the main thing, you seek God and God will reveal to you the main thing. 
It's going to be a good time, three times a week, the church has already prepared for you, a time to seek God and to hear from Him, Shema from God, not just hear, but obey the Lord. And the Lord will lay upon your heart the main thing which the Lord wants you to work on for this season. And also, together with this prayer, there's also fasting. And I'm going to encourage you to fast along. I would not ask you to do something which I'm not doing, so I will do. I'll fast along with you too. Let's fast together and seek God. Make the main thing the main thing, and God will reveal to you what is it that you've got to focus on in this season of your life. Seek God, and don't let these little nitty-gritty things like offences, grievances, hurts along the way, put it aside. Surrender it to God. Practice forgiveness. Someone once said, to practice, not to practice forgiveness is like drinking poison every day and hope the other person will die. You know? Practice forgiveness. Develop forbearance and patience. Remember Proverbs 15:33 that says, Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord. Fear is a holy fear, not a fear that drives you away, but a fear that draws you in to know the Lord God, like Israelites did in that 40 years, to know the Lord God, fear the Lord. And then humility comes before honour. Wow. The third and the last reminder is a foretaste of victory. Not only does God jealously guard His people, those that He calls His own, He gives them increasing challenges. Like, like a father, it was mentioned just now, right, the scripture, like a father cares for the child. He gives them challenges. He helps them cut their teeth so that they begin to be able to tackle more tough things and to have a foretaste of things that are to come. Deuteronomy 2, verse 24 says this. It, it records the Lord's instructing to Moses. Set out now, cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I've given into your hands Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day, I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and you will tremble and, and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. The rest of the count of victory is in the rest of chapter 2. But what is obvious is that this victory over Sihon is not an awesome or stupendous victory like later. The victory over Jericho, the whole city collapsed, you know, or Ai where they, they, they learned the lesson. Or even over the five kings of the Amorites at the highlands. Nothing like that at all. It's a small victory. And these exploits you already studied from the book of Joshua early on, right? You remember them? Ah, because I preach on them, so I remember. You may not. Like pastor says, what was the message last week? Huh? Good message, but I don't remember. Okay. But yes, that was the message that was in Joshua. They had great victories, but this is before those great victories. They had small victories now over Sihon. It's a foretaste of greater things to come. It's a foretaste of greater things to come. And I should point out too, at this point, that it was the Lord that gave the victory and the Lord that magnified the influence of Israel over their enemies, over the other nations, that they regard Israel with fear and terror. The Lord gave it to them. Historically, Heshbon, or Isibus in Arabic or Hebrew, was not a town of significance on the east side of the Jordan River. It was, however, one of the last towns that were conquered by the Israelites before they move into God's promise. Frequently, under God's sovereign design, He brings about little victories amongst His people to encourage us as well as to prepare us for bigger victories later on. We see that time and time again in the biblical characters like 
David, David who started off as a shepherd boy, but God tutored him in the musical and martial arts. And among the many things that he crafted in that musical category were the Psalms. Many of the Psalms were crafted by him. One of the Psalms that related of his encounter with God is found in Psalm 18, verse 32. This is what David says. It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. Those deers at those times are those mountain goats, the ebex. I just saw a documentary on ebex. They are so sure-footed that they can even climb vertical cliff face like human beings do. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle and my arms can bend a bowl of bronze. That is David's true testimony. Throughout both in the Old and the New Testament, almost every biblical hero or heroine has flaws or had humble beginnings that God used to build upon to secure major victories subsequently. Moses himself, the writer of this, had a speech impediment when he was asked to speak to Pharaoh. He said, did you ask Aaron to speak, not me? Moses himself. Esther was an orphan. Queen Esther raised by Mordecai. Elisha, formerly a farmer. Gideon was found hiding in the wine press to cultivate food because they were oppressed. Ruth, a foreign widow, a Moabitess, coming later into the legacy of David, which culminated in the Lord Jesus. Peter and Andrew, fishermen, uneducated. And Ananias, Ananias was absolutely terrified when he was asked to restore the sight to whom? Saul. Ananias, nobody. Through him, God raised up the greatest missionary of all times. The list goes on and on. In each transformed life, it is God who gives victory. Amen? It's God who gives victory over circumstances and over people. Hallelujah. If God can turn the world right side up with this motley crew, what more God can do? Awesome, stupendous and miraculous things in your life. In your life. And God will turn it right side up, not upside down, but right side up. Amen? That is what our God does. A modern-day transformation of a simple evangelistic tool based on connecting that started with four small groups of people in a little town called London in 1977 has been multiplied by God into an extremely effective outreach platform for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the furtherance of His kingdom. It's called the Alpha Course. <laughs> okay? I am doing maybe a little bit of advertisement, but I'm actually giving a testament. This is what happened. It's called the Alpha Course, and its initial success actually was nothing to shout about. For 13 whole years, there was just a trickle of salvations, but there were small victories to be celebrated. Nonetheless, what happened in the year 1990 onwards? The small trickle became a torrent of souls being ushered into God's kingdom. And it was a tremendous success for the last 30 years. The Alpha Course has been designed and redesigned and revamped to cater for the young, for the old, for different groups of people in the community, in the church, in the homes, in the workplace. And it's been translated to 112 languages and being People are meeting in more than a hundred countries all over the world with all the Christian almost all Christian denominations participating in it. And today, 24 million people have already attended the Alpha groups before. 
it's amazing and truly a move of God that even in this global COVID pandemic, it wasn't a damper. A new format of Alpha emerged, which is Alpha Online, that has even more attraction to participants and more people came. And there were salvations. From our own church-wide Alpha experience, we find that there was a salvation rate of about 40%. That means, in other words, for every 10 people that were coming to the group, four of them will come to accept the Lord at the end of 10 weeks. And then they go beyond that. They want to stay on because of the connection that's made. And then they may eventually more will come to know the Lord. Just last year alone, we had 19 salvations and 10 groups. Praise the Lord! Just from Alpha, amongst the many things. So as a spin-off, these groups that ran it, the cells or even the small groups were rejuvenated and they experienced dynamic changes by the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Wow. So the Lord wants to, bring, to carry on this momentum. So let's, let's go on with this momentum, right? This momentum is given to us as a church and I want to encourage you, the many of you who are leaders here, go out, gather a few, start an alpha group, start an alpha group. This is a good time. Now, now this is a time of reflection, of seeking the Lord. What better than a way to encourage your people to reach out to at the same time? So if you want, all of you want a foretaste of even having the whole of heaven rejoicing over one sinner saved and you have not experienced it before, try Alpha. You can just contact us at the link there, tiny.cc backslash SIBKL Alpha or inquire at the email given. I can moonlight as an advertiser, can't I? Hmm. Okay. Well, they started this morning with the idea of looking back in order to look ahead with Deuteronomy chapter 1 and 2. Through these scriptures, we learn how Moses, nearing the end of his days, reminded God's people, the Israelites, of God's goodness, his protection, and his provision towards them in those years of wandering. But these years were not wasted as they prepared, as they were preparing for the next generation of God's people moving into God's promise. Now, specific to the preparation of this move, God reminded them through Moses of the need to forego the forbidden, forbear the enemies, and be encouraged to have by the foretaste of victory that God gives to us. And each of these reminders are relatable to us in our experience and our circumstances too. So in closing, we need to take stock of the parallels we can draw between the Israelites' move into God's promise and our move as a church, both as a community and as individuals into this new pre-post-COVID era as well as into the next phase of the church leadership. We talk about the passing of a whole generation of outdated and negative attitudes that have to be replaced with a vibrant and enthusiastic culture. I say enthusiastic because it has to be grounded in enthos, in God, that's what it means has to be grounded in, into an, a, a process that's greatly inspired by God. And if you're really into it and want to be committed to this, ask yourself this. What is it about God that really inspires you? What is it about God, about God's character that really drives you on? Dares me that. You know the Japanese has this term called Ikigai? How many of you have heard of this term, Ikigai? Ikigai is what moves you out of bed in the morning, that drives you, that motivates you, that gives you, that, that, that makes you want to wake up and I want to see the next morning. 
That's Ikigai. Well, for some people, Ikigai is a cup of coffee. But I want to ask you this morning, what, where does God feature in your Ikigai? Where does God feature in your Ikigai? What is it that drives you? How much does God feature in that? And if you really want to experience and to encounter that, then you have to make the commitment to enter into God's promises for you. Like the crossover, the transition that Israelites have to make to cross the Jordan into God's promise, the promised land. Now, commitments do cost, but I grant you that when you live and you work and you know the main thing is that you are in God's promise, that will be worth it. That commitment will be worth it. It will be worth it. God's promises are yes and amen. His promises never fail. His promises never fail. For some, it may mean foregoing the forbidden, giving up the things that hold you back. For others, it may be forbearing those embedded grievances, those hurt, those offences, those pain that's inside you and begin the journey of forgiveness. And yet for others, you may experience a joy, a leap of excitement, a gratitude this morning when I shared from the Word of God that you begin to realise that you're having a foretaste of great things that are to come. You may be in one of these three groups of people. And if you're any of this and you want to make that commitment to be part God's people that are committed to follow the Lord's promises, to assimilate the Lord's promise into your life. May I encourage you at this point to just rise up and I'll pray for you. If you're one of this, who want the Lord to fulfill His prophetic destiny in you and His promises that are yes and amen, come true in your life as a token to God and not to any of us in a reflective and prayerful attitude would you rise up and for the rest of us who also want to be committed to fulfill God's promise for SIBKL as a group of committed people to enter into God's promise for SIBKL that was prophesied over SIBKL 15 years ago that it will be a gateway church and you want to be part of it Will you also join those that are standing? And we will pray together. Even those online, if you're online, God sees you where you are. Do join us in prayer too. So as we close, I just want to pray for all of you. That as we all stand, it's an affirmation of the very same token that we did this morning. The communion that we took. There is an affirmation of the covenant between Father God and you that you want to be serious about this covenant and you want to shima and obey your part of the covenant between God and you. That it is in God's presence that you acknowledge this. That it is only through the finished work of Christ upon the cross that this is completed and is made possible. So Father, I just want to commit this group of my brothers and sisters who are standing with me in your sanctuary, Lord God. 
You're God Almighty. You're God the gracious. You're God who sees our every need, who is with your people and for your people all the time, Lord. So Lord, for those of my brothers and sisters who are here, who wants to forego the forbidden, Lord God, I pray, Father, that you will enable them to do so. The energy, the, 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 the resolve, the need, the ability to do so, Lord, when we fail, Lord God, we go not on our own strength. But Lord God, it's you. It's you who is able to do that. And Lord, if there are those who have, uh, have, have the grievances and the hurts and the offences this morning, Lord, I pray, Father, they'll be able to forbear this and to forgive, Lord God. And I pray to Father for those who have enjoyed that little foretaste of victory that you gave them this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, that you will bring about in our hearts a greater joy in time to come, that we are foretaste of the greater victory that you will give unto your people, Lord God. And we thank you, Lord God, this morning as we come before you, that we can come together as a church committed, Lord God, to build your kingdom, to further the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. We thank you, we praise you, and we honour you that, Lord God, you are a God who is the way maker, who is a miracle worker and Lord God who makes, who keeps His promise, a promise keeper. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, Lord, you know our thoughts. You know your, we know, Lord, your plans for us are good, Lord God. We know, Father God, that you are with us and you are for us. Lord God, we thank you this morning that we can sit beneath the shadow of the cross to hear your word, Father. And Lord, you heard every voice that cried out in prayer to you, Lord God. And I thank you, Father, that even as we depart from this place, the love of the Father goes with us, never deserting us. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for us to meet every challenge, every encounter. And I pray to Lord God that the love of the the love of the Father, the grace of the Holy Spirit, and the fellowship, the whole, the precious fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with one and all and keep us all safe until we meet again. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.